0: Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Pantassi. My guest today is Ethan Katz, the author of The Burdens of Brotherhood, Jews and Muslims from North Africa to France. And the book was published by Harvard University Press in 2015. Hi there, Ethan. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me on the show.
1: Could you get us started, Ethan, by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France?
0: Sure. Um, so uh, I'm a specialist in modern French history and modern Jewish history. I uh, traveled to France with my family a lot as a child and an adolescent. So that, that sort of the origins of my interest in France, uh, I think, uh, like a lot of our uh, fellow uh, French study scholars. And I got interested in this particular topic because I had always been interested both in, um, modern European history, uh, particularly French history and, um, Middle East history and especially, uh, the history of the, uh, Israeli Arab conflict. And my sort of first interest in this was in thinking about, uh, ways in which the Middle East conflict, uh, was or was not affecting, uh, Jews and Muslims in France. I, you know, ended up uh, writing a book where I, I don't talk nearly as much about uh, the Israeli-Arab conflict uh, as one might have suspected, but that was part of my way into uh, this project.
1: In the introduction to the book, Ethan, you, you set up the project here as an attempt to rethink the Jewish-Muslim question in France from the Great War to the present. So let's start with this idea of Jewish-Muslim relations. How are you both using and interrogating this idea throughout the book?
0: That's a great question. I I mean, the book is A History of Jewish-Muslim Relations, comes into uh, a series of conversations about relations between uh, Jews and Muslims, both, you know, very broadly, uh, there's a literature that really begins, uh, particularly in the Middle Ages, uh, and and has increasingly treated the modern period in a variety of contexts, and then also the very specific questions that are being raised uh, about France, particularly right now, but I wanted to also emphasize that you know it, it shouldn't be a foregone conclusion for us that the best way to understand relationships between a given Jew and a given Muslim or a given group of Jews and a given group of Muslims is as, quote, Jewish-Muslim relations, that there are a whole set of assumptions that are built into that framework of understanding. And so I, I think that the best way to interrogate concepts is not by completely throwing them overboard, mm-hmm. um, because we're We're going to be talking about Jewish-Muslim relations for a while, whether or not it's the best formula, but it it is to try to sort of peel back and think about other frameworks uh, through which we might understand uh, that same question that we call uh, Jewish-Muslim relations. So what I try to do in the book is to ask over and over again how given Jews and Muslims were understanding themselves and each other when they related to each other, whether it was necessarily as members of Uh, ethnic or religious groups uh, with potentially conflicting loyalties, uh, or whether it had more to do with legal status, or what neighborhood or locality they lived in, or some of their cultural traditions that they often shared if they came from North Africa, uh, and so forth.
1: As you say, Ethan, there's certainly, and especially in the last several years, a kind of growing literature on the communities considered separately, Jews and Muslims in France, but then also the relationships between those communities. Could you just sort of give us a brief sense of what you see as your main intervention in that literature?
0: Sure. So yeah, there is some other very good work that's been done, particularly Maud Mandel's book Mm -hmm. uh, that was published in 2014. I think there are two or three uh, key ways in which my book is different from uh, most of the literature to date. One thing is the long-term perspective that the book tries to offer. You know, most uh, treatments of Uh, Jews and Muslims in France have started either with the founding of the state of Israel Mm or 1967 or the 1990s, 2000s. And I think one of the things that is really built into the way we think about Jews and Muslims today is a whole set of political assumptions that are tied into uh, the rise of the nation state and the triumph of the nation state in the 20th century. Um, The, the, a collapse of empires and a very deep consensus uh, around uh, a lot of uh, critiques of uh, colonialism. And that means that all kinds of arrangements of group identity that appeared possible 60 or 70 years ago often don't even sort of cross our minds today when we try to think about how groups related to each other historically. And Jews and Muslims are two groups that were particularly in the crosshairs of a lot of the political conceptions that emerged uh, and were debated across the late nineteenth and early to mid twentieth century, uh, and so they were were not necessarily always uh, seeing themselves or each other according to um, the nation state, according to the conflicting uh, nation states in the Middle East today, uh, according to impossibilities of uh, more complex arrangements under the French Empire, uh, which were tried at different points. So, I think going, I think one of the big virtues of going back is to look at uh, those kinds of possibilities that are now often erased from our memory. Um, A second thing that the book does differently from most other work is to try to look not mostly or certainly not only at uh, political uh, relationships, but also to try to look at developments at a ground level. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, One of the arguments that Maud Mandel makes in her book, which I think is in many ways quite compelling, uh, is that over time a discourse of conflict between Jews and Muslims uh, becomes so powerful that it makes it very difficult for relations on the ground between the two groups uh, to be anything other than conflictual. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we look at uh, different kinds of sources and different pockets of relationships, we see that while certainly uh, there is an, an increase over the course of the 20th century in uh, conflict and in identifications with opposing uh, political and ethnic groups, uh, there are lots of ways in which Jews and Muslims continue to relate to each other in more complex ways and can resist uh, some of these uh, discourses of conflict. Um, and I think we only get that with a kind of very broad based approach uh, that doesn't just look at state sources. Um, and, you know, I did a lot of oral histories. And mm-hmm. um, so I think, uh, I think those are two of the, the key components, I guess, tied into that second piece would also be the emphasis on different localities and uh, trying to look at three different uh, cities uh, across France, uh, Paris, Marseille, and not uh, Strasbourg uh, to get away from a, a Paris centric, Uh, approach, which is, of course, very common in a lot of literature on France, uh, but also to try to ask ourselves what is the importance of the local to these relations by comparing them in three different cities.
1: And there's a lot in what you just said that I want to follow up on. But but before I do, I I, I want to ask, I guess, what's the specificity of doing this in the French context as opposed to, you know, the European context or some other national context?
0: Right. Uh, So I think that In the French context, the history of Jewish-Muslim relations is very much wrapped up in the history of empire and the history of colonialism, uh, as well as the history of French universalism, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, these questions about the relationship between the empire and the republic uh, and the uh, limits and meaning of French universalism that have really preoccupied a lot of French historians for the last 15 years, uh, they are uh, cast in... I think, in new light by looking at Jews and Muslims together. Uh, a lot of good work has been done that, that is often focused on uh, a single um, minority group or type of minority group or has compared groups but not talked a great deal about how they relate with one another. So I think that the the question of you know the meaning of the French Empire and what it has meant for people at at the margins, if you will, is one that is drawn out, uh, by looking at Jews and Muslims together. But I also, I also think that Jewish Muslim relations in France are in those ways distinct from Jewish Muslim relations across Europe, right? So we have sort of a lot of discussion about Muslims in Europe, uh, as if it's roughly the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is a lot about France that's very specific that relates uh, substantially to its colonial history and its longstanding struggles, uh, particularly uh, through Algeria, uh, with the possibilities of integration or not for Muslims. Uh, and that's a story that I think is inseparable from uh, the story of uh, Jews as a minority in France. So I, I think that understanding what's specific about the French case in, in this larger conversation about Muslims and Jews in Europe today Is also important.
1: Throughout the book, Ethan, you show in different ways that we cannot understand relations between Jews and Muslims in France without thinking through the relationships of both groups to the French state and notions of Frenchness. Can you tell us a little bit about this triangular affair in a general sense before we get into the details of how it shifts at different moments in modern French history?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, basically, I think if we look at Jewish Muslim relations from very early on, Uh, the two groups are frequently positioned differently legally, right? So Mm -hmm. for a very long time, the vast majority of Muslims in France come from uh, French Algeria and they are until uh, 1958, four years before Algerian independence. They are not equal French citizens. They have different status at different times, but they are uh, decidedly unequal uh, legally and Jews beginning in 1870 uh, nearly all of the Jews in Algeria become full French citizens. Meanwhile, Jews who either uh, were born in France or come to France uh, from other, typically other parts of Europe, uh, they have a relatively normal path to French citizenship, like other immigrants. So, legal differences are are extremely important, uh, and they mean that when Jews and Muslims think about each other and, and their positions, they are often, you know, looking across. Uh, dividing lines created by the French state. But it's also because each group is historically a group that has been vulnerable in France. And so when they're thinking about each other, they're often thinking about how they can position themselves uh, either to try to foster greater inclusion, uh, sometimes uh, around resistance uh, to the French state, and they're looking you know in the case of Jews they they were sometimes trying to make sure that the french authorities realized that, say, in Algeria, they were citizens. They may have been natives, but they were different uh, than Muslims. This is what they want to insist upon. Uh, and for Muslims in Algeria, they look at Jews and they see a group that's been privileged by the French state uh, in ways that seem very unfair. Uh, and so when they think about Jews, they they don't think about them independent from uh, their greater rights, uh, their alliance with aspects uh, of French politics and culture. Uh, and so um, the combination of both a series of policies from the French state that were often very disparate toward the two groups and the group's shared vulnerability, uh, I think, helps to account for uh, this kind of triangular relationship.
1: One of the things that you set up in the in the introduction, Ethan, is this uh, differentiation between thinking about Jewish and Muslim identities as situational rather than definitional. And you also have this notion of situational ethnicity that's part of the framework here. Could you say a little bit more about that?
0: Um, yeah, so I really want us to get away from, you know, part. it's partly related to what I said at the outset about uh, the meaning of Jewish-Muslim relations, right? Mm-hmm. I want to get us away from thinking that what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be a Muslim is sort of understood and assumed and roughly the same in each context. Um, so the notion of situational ethnicity, it's not my uh, original idea. It comes from ethnic studies. It was used, I think, really effectively by Dilfant Raden uh in a book called uh, Jews and Other Germans that he wrote about uh, German Jews in the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, and it means that we look at Jews and Muslims and we have to Uh, assume that what it means to be Jewish or Muslim and the importance of being Jewish or Muslim can vary dramatically from person to person, from subgroup to subgroup, and from context to context, even for the same people and the same subgroups. So, for instance, for many Jews and Muslims, the importance of being Jewish or Muslim is really fundamental in the home when they're sitting ar- around for a family meal, uh, especially uh, maybe a holiday meal. Um, but it's not necessarily important at all when they're in their workplace and they're uh, standing next to their fellow worker on an assembly line in the factory. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it means to be Jewish uh, could be, uh, you know, very different in a political context versus a religious or a family context. So my, my, My hope is that by taking that into account, uh, we again start to really get a sense of the multiplicity of ways that Jews and Muslims have understood each other, and the multiplicity of factors driving their relations beyond being Jewish or being Muslim.
1: Before we get into the more detailed discussion of the chapters of the book, Ethan, I just want to linger for a second on on the title, The Burdens of Brotherhood, so where Where did that title come from for you, and why why did you
0: choose it? Well, it's good alliteration um, <laughs> no no um, but uh beyond that i I chose that title for you know i I felt like it brought together a lot of ideas of for me what the book was about. you know Brotherhood is clearly an allusion to fraternité mm-hmm. uh this you know French ideal of what binds. Uh, The nation together. Um, And at the same time, it's also for me clearly an allusion to the possibility or challenges of Jewish Muslim brotherhood. And so the idea that, you know, we spoke about earlier already that uh, Jews and Muslims relations with each other are so tied up with uh, their uh, ability to integrate into the wider French nation state or empire. uh, For me, that the dual meaning of brotherhood there uh, speaks to that. Um, and the burdens, uh, speaks to th- those challenges for, from my standpoint, as I talk a little bit about in the introduction, uh, Jews and Muslims, they're certainly not unique in terms of facing challenges of integration in modern French history, of course. But the ways in which each group, uh, has been seen frequently as problematic from the standpoint of, Traditional religious practices, problematic from the standpoint of, uh, transnational political ties, uh, problematic in the specifically, uh, colonial context. That combination, uh, is, I think, uh, rather uh, distinct to the two groups. Uh, and I sort of thought of that as a combination of, uh, so-called, uh, burdens to be, in a sense, uh, needing to be overcome uh, if one uh, is to be fully part of uh, the fraternité of France or, or brotherhood, but also burdens to be overcome if they uh, could relate to, to each other uh, successfully.
1: In the book's first chapter, Ethan, you refer to the First World War as, and I'm quoting you here, the foundational event for Jewish-Muslim relations um, in modern metropolitan France. So the book This long view that you take in in this book, and one of the things that distinguishes the study from uh, some of the other scholarship out there begins with world war one. Did you consider other points of departure for the book? 1870, for example, what is it about world war one that that made it your starting point?
0: Well, it was about as far back as I was willing to go. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no, I mean, I did consider other points of departure. It's a very good question. I mean, this, this book grew out of my dissertation, as you know, and, very early on, I was not imagining that I would start from such an early point. I mean, it sounds crazy to me now, but I had ideas <laughs> about starting the book in the 1970s. Um, then I had ideas about starting the book in 1945. But I was, I was encouraged, um, you know, in part by one of my advisors, you know, very early on to think, well, maybe there are interesting things going on already in, say, the interwar years, the First World War. And what became clear to me from my preliminary research was the First World War was the first moment of anything like widespread Jewish-Muslim contact in France because it was the first time where large numbers of Muslims came to France. Hmm. So, I mean, while the book ventures a great deal uh, across the Mediterranean, it's one of the themes of the book in certain ways, it is a book that's anchored in metropolitan France. And I think ultimately I felt like I had to Uh, in order to make it manageable, I had to sort of keep that anchor point. And that meant, okay, let's start from the moment where there is a lot of, you know, opportunity for interaction in metropolitan France. Otherwise uh, we would indeed be starting the 19th century and I would still be writing the book. So
1: what can you tell us about the respective experiences of Jews and Muslims in, in battle and on the home front? And I guess the, the second part of, of, my, my question about the First World War would be, you know, you, you say that it set a tone for Jewish-Muslim relations that, that would prevail for decades to come. So I guess what were the legacies of World War I for Jewish-Muslim relations?
0: Right. Great questions. The relationships during the war are extremely varied. Um, there are many Jews and Muslims serving together on the battlefront. And to some degree, they're like any other ordinary soldiers. Um, they are united by a common cause. Uh, both groups also share the fact that they see the war in different ways as an opportunity to prove their French patriotism. But in the case of Jews, of course, they're already uh, French citizens or uh, they are immigrants uh, to France, you know, hoping to show how much they appreciate the hospitality of France. Uh, in the case of Muslims, they really you know, m- many who are advocating for French citizenship for Muslims, they see this as a way that Muslims can and must prove themselves. So even in that way, the two groups are not equal. Most of the Jews and Muslims that serve together in battle are serving in the, in, in these mixed units of, uh, tirailleurs, de um, colonial infantry in North Africa, uh, and Zoabs who are the infantry made up of, uh, French citizens in North Africa. So that is colonists, uh, and, and Jews. Um, and so they are, they're not equal, not only, uh, in terms of their citizenship, but, uh, there are all kinds of racial hierarchies that are talked about in, uh, internal French military documents. Uh, Rick Fogarty's written about this really well in his book um, and there's also things like the fact that uh, a large number of Jews are interpreters in the military because they speak both Arabic and French and they're trusted uh, there are a small number of Muslim interpreters but they're generally much more trusted than Muslims so they're in this kind of odd position of you know providing for certain kinds of needs for Muslims that Muslims can communicate much more effectively to the interpreters than they can directly to their commanders, um, whether it's for, uh, certain kinds of food that they want or for traditional Muslims for, you know, copies of the Quran, um, or for, you know, medical needs or whatnot. But they're also reporting to the commanders about the morale of these soldiers. They're reading their letters, including like, you know, letters about their romantic liaisons. So, Even in this shared experience of battle for the same cause, uh, there are these inequalities that are already there. Uh, at the same time that, you know, Jews and Muslims are often in these North African units together, speaking Arabic together, uh, the story, you know, the first chapter begins with this story, which May or may not be apocryphal, but uh, nonetheless, I think tells us a lot uh, about a Jew and a Muslim having this very philosophical discussion about Judaism and Islam in the trenches. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are still also these these common North African elements that uh, bring people together in that experience. Um, in terms of the legacies of the war, you know, I, I think the unequal footing on which the soldiers are, are fighting together. Uh, it's very much, uh, emblematic of this triangle, right? Um, first moment that they're brought together, uh, they're brought together with aspirations for equal citizenship with certain things that they share as, um, you know, minorities trying to, uh, achieve, uh, equality and, and make their sort of case for, uh, Frenchness, but they also, are, are not equal, uh, you know, along legal lines. Also, the fact is that the the french jewish community is much older uh they have a whole apparatus in place already which makes it much easier for instance for them to you know get kosher food to uh jewish soldiers whereas the french state takes responsibility for all of the religious needs of muslims there's no you know muslim community in uh, metropolitan france to uh, help these people uh so so that's one way in which it sets a tone uh but then of course there are these global outcomes of the war that are incredibly important as well. Uh, the emergence of uh, Zionism as a as real kind of possibility with the Balfour Declaration in 1917 from the British government, uh, you know, promising a Jewish home in Palestine, the emergence of Arab nationalism as a much more significant movement through uh, the Arab revolt and the promises made by the allies, uh, to various Arab leaders during the war, uh, and, and then the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, these, of course, will be the seeds of the, uh, Arab Zionist conflict as we know it, uh, which will uh, prove of course, very important to uh, Jewish-Muslim relations over time. And the ideas about national self-determination that come out of the war, as well as uh, you know, even the international communist movement, uh, these are all going to be global developments that do a lot to help shape Jewish-Muslim relations in the decades to come.
1: One of the things that I found really fascinating about the book is this emphasis on the Mediterranean context.
0: Right. So uh, this idea actually... You know, came to me uh, somewhat late in working on the book. Um, partly, I think, influenced by uh, w- what is sort of a burgeoning conversation about Mediterranean France that I think is a very uh, fruitful uh, conversation, mm-hmm. and and that is trying to think about France uh, not simply in a Western European context, but also in a wider uh, Mediterranean context. And so, it occurred to me that really if we look especially at that uh, interwar moment, uh, but indeed at a lot of this history, it begins to in some ways make much more sense uh, and be much more decipherable. uh, The complexity of these relationships, if we think about the ways in which a whole series of uh, crossings, that is uh, mobilities, movements, um, influences from uh, around the Mediterranean, you know, coming through France, radiating out from France to other places and circling back, that those things are helping to shape uh, the way the Jews and Muslims understand each other and relate to each other in France. And the Jews and Muslims themselves are really a key part of the story of France being kind of resituated uh, in a Mediterranean context. Um, and yeah, in the interwar years, we see that partly through the first uh, sets of uh, neighborhoods and day-to-day interactions between uh, Jews and Muslims from uh, places like North Africa and the Levant uh, but we also see it in the importance of uh, political causes that are crossing the Mediterranean uh, from uh, the rise of uh, the first Algerian nationalist groups to the emergence of uh, more you know the first really sustained violence in uh, Palestine uh, that affects Jews and Muslims uh, elsewhere, including in France.
1: The chapters of the book, Ethan, really track the ways that Jewish-Muslim relations are change and, um, and, and shift um, at these kind of key moments, right, World War I, the interwar years, World War II, uh, the, the, the post-war period and, and, and the Algerian War, um, and then you move up to the to, to the end of the 20th century. The chapter on the Second World War and the period of Vichy and the occupation is one in which you're showing a kind of exceptional moment in uh, this, the the respective statuses of Jews and Muslims with respect to the French state, um, but you're also changing the way that we think about the history of that period of Vichy and the occupation.
0: I mean, I, I think that the way in which this gives us a different perspective on the occupation is in part by comparing Jewish and Muslim positions uh, under Vichy, which is something that has rarely been done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the we, we know, of course, much more about the Jewish experience of uh, occupation, and we know that it was you know the darkest hour for uh, Jews in French history, um, where one fourth of the community was deported, uh, the vast majority of them never to return, um, and and you know uh, thousands of others were. Uh, in concentration camps, or, or lost their jobs, uh, lost their property. Um, but I think that the assumption that we uh, would make would be um, if if we knew that there were, uh, you know, if, if people know that Muslims were in France in significant numbers at this time, which uh, often they don't, uh, I think the assumption would be that Muslims were maybe persecuted less than Jews, but also racial others. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that simply wasn't the case. Um, the racial status of Muslims was in certain respects ambiguous, but for legal purposes, they were much more like Aryans than they were like undesirables or others. Uh, and so much so that you had, as I talk about in that chapter, you had, uh, significant numbers of North African and Levantine Jews who tried to disguise themselves as Muslims in various ways, uh, in the hopes of evading persecution. I should say that the other kind of mythical view of Muslims during World War II more broadly is that they were, you know, eager collaborators in large numbers, right? Um, and what we see is that there certainly were Muslims who, uh, you know, joined uh, collaborationist groups uh, from the Parti Populaire Francaise, uh to the uh, anti-Bolshevik legion uh, that goes to fight on the Russian front, um, but they're they were a relatively small uh, minority uh, and that Muslims made just as wide a range of choices uh, under Vichy and occupation as uh, other ordinary French people. But the meaning of their choices, I think uh, is something that we have to assess differently. And, and this I think is hopefully uh, helpful beyond just thinking about Muslims, right? Uh, because the Holocaust is such a central focus, of our understanding of the occupation years, for good reason, uh, we tend to assess people's choices very much in moralistic terms, and we tend to align anti Semitism with collaboration, uh, and we tend to think that that is sort of the leading motivation for people uh, or certainly a big part of their outlook if they uh, decided to join up uh, with uh, pro-German forces. And what we see with Muslims is that uh, in many cases anti-colonialism is far more important. Uh, in some cases also anti- uh, secularism. Uh, Vichy, of course, uh, we, we know something about the story of how Vichy uh, tried to Kind of revive the, the fortunes of the Catholic Church, uh, and, and kind of resurrect a closer, uh, state church relationship. But they also were much friendlier to, uh, Muslim religious institutions than the Republic had been and to what they perceived as Muslim religious needs. Um, and so, uh, this question of anti secularism also seems to have been important. Uh, but, but a lot of people seem to have thought that Maybe they wouldn't get independence, but they had a chance of their lives improving under Vichy or under the Germans, having become very disillusioned with uh, the Republic, uh, particularly after the failures of the uh, reform proposals of the uh, Front Populaire uh, in the 1930s. So I think that the the motivations for collaboration uh, look different. The range of choices uh, that Muslims were making are something we don't really know about uh and then the comparative perspective of two minority groups that have historically been persecuted in france but that lived this period so differently uh you know gives us a different picture of the meaning of the occupation years
1: something you just said ethan makes me want to ask you about the role that catholics and catholicism play in, in in the book and in this you know hundred year history that you're pursuing here. I mean, you talk about the triangular fair. Is there a rectangular fair at least? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, right. So the, the triangle as was pointed out to me at one point, each quarter of the triangle has a lot of facets to it. Right. Sure. So for me, I, I do think that the, the position of Catholics and, um, the importance of Catholicism to French culture. I mean, it's something that I do try to bring out in a few moments of the book. Um, and I do think it's important to the story. Uh, I would see it as part of the place of wider French culture and French society and the French state uh, in sort of in the one corner of that triangle. Um, but certainly, right. So during world war one, I didn't mention the uh, Union Zakre, right the right, of course. Uh, sacred union uh, that's formed uh, very early in the war and where Jews are kind of always understood to be included, and Jews are very proud of their place in the Union Sacrée, and they tout it all the time in the uh, Jewish press. And then Muslims, who are fighting in much larger numbers than Jews, are very seldom mentioned in discussions of the Union Sacré. Uh, and so uh, you have this uh, kind of you know, clear hierarchy there, uh, around proximities to, uh, the Catholic Church. And, uh, Jews seem to kind of be folded back into, uh, the, uh, religious fabric of France nationally at that moment after the bitter, uh, divisions of the Dreyfus Affair that often, uh, had strongly religious overtones. Whereas during the Second World War, as I think you're partly alluding to, uh, you have this, uh almost kind of uh union sacre that Muslims seem like they are part of at least from the discourses of people like uh Pétain at Times and from the uh outlay of resources from the Vichy state which are somewhat remarkable given the deprivations of uh the war uh and of course Jews are very clearly uh not uh part of uh, any kind of uh national religious uh fabric at that point so uh I do think that the two groups position vis-a-vis the Catholic Church I mean I also talked very briefly about how uh there there are notions during the French Algerian war of a kind of uh emerging intercivilizational conflict uh where uh, Israel and France are seen as on the same side and uh, Islam is seen as the enemy by certain uh nationalists particularly on the far right uh and then in the 1970s you have uh, certain uh, clerics who become very sympathetic to uh, the movement for immigrant rights uh, that Muslims are, are involved in and lend a certain kind of credibility through things like opening their churches or uh, protesting uh, on, on behalf of these Muslims. So I think that that does remain important throughout the story.
1: So in the post 45 period, uh, you look at the shifts and the emergence of the Arab Israeli conflict and the struggles against French Empire, in particular in Algeria. Um, so, two questions, uh, and of course, these are connected. How, how does this new stage in Muslim Jewish relations on, a, on an international scale uh, affect Jewish Muslim relations um, in, in France? And uh, what is the role of the Algerian War uh, in the story that you're telling?
0: Right. So, uh, the, the new stage of international relations, of course, uh, is very important. I mean, the founding the state of Israel and the emergence of the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, to some degree, it doesn't have this dramatic immediate impact in 1948. Um, Maude Mandel actually deals with this in greater detail in, in her book than I do in mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's clear that it, it doesn't uh, you know, reshape uh, large numbers of, of Jews and Muslims' uh, perceptions of each other. Um, The degree to which it's important tends to be through their more immediate concerns. That is, the Arab-Israeli conflict becomes a new way to talk sometimes about their Frenchness or in the case of certain Muslims, their sense that they don't belong. So French foreign policy that's seen as pro-Israel uh, is seen as one more thing that they're resisting against uh, as they feel that they're uh, being treated unfairly by uh, the French state. Um, but it's always there in the background, right? I mean, now you have a permanent state of belligerency um, between uh, a Jewish state uh, and a set of, uh, Arab Muslim states, um, that will be informing the politics of the two groups. Uh, and then the French Algerian War, I mean, that is really the central story, uh, certainly politically and ultimately much more broadly for Jews and Muslims beginning, uh, in the mid 1950s, uh, through, uh, the end of French Algeria in 1962. Um, you know, the, the war, initially is both a military struggle and a struggle on the part of the French state to kind of desperately try to integrate Muslims in Algeria into France. Uh, And that's a part of the story that uh, hasn't been told as much. Um, You know, uh, the work of Todd Shepard recently has has focused a a lot of attention on that, Uh, but it's very important because it helps us to offer kind of window into various ways that both Jews and Muslims were not necessarily falling into either pro-French Algeria, you know, a sort of an absolutist position of colonial control and uh, assimilation, uh, or uh, anti-colonial independence is the only path forward, uh, that many people were Sort of articulating uh, mixed allegiances and identities for a lot of the war, uh, and you know, articulating a, a politics uh, that, that seemed, at least for brief periods, to uh, allow for uh, different kinds of possibilities, like uh, Muslims who become full French citizens uh, from Algeria without having to surrender uh, their uh, status under uh, Muslim law, something that had always been demanded previously by uh, the French state. Um, but by the late stages of the war, um, it becomes clear that Jews and Muslims are essentially going to have to choose, uh, between, uh, their allegiance to France, uh, and their ties to Algeria, uh, in a way that will, uh, be extremely divisive. Um, both the Algerian nationalists and the French state by the very end of the war will have these extremely absolutist visions of belonging. Uh, And that will mean that, you know, the the possibilities of hybrid citizenship uh, for Jews uh, in in, uh, an independent Algeria that were discussed at different points uh, or uh, this momentary status Uh, for uh, Muslims from Algeria of being able to uh, maintain both their uh, Muslim uh, personal status and become French citizens. Those those uh, excuse me, those possibilities will evaporate um, in a way that will really divide the groups uh, for years to come.
1: You go on, Ethan, in the book to talk about the ways that these communities of Jews and Muslims who come from North Africa settle Uh, in metropolitan France and the different shapes and forms that those communities and the interactions between them uh, take. Uh, In the sixth chapter of the book, you focus on the impact of the 1967 war on Jewish-Muslim relations. And I mean, it's kind of a fascinating chapter where you're looking at this international context and the way that impacts relations uh, between Jews and Muslims in France. And you're also looking at things on the ground in neighborhoods like Bellevue. Could you talk a little bit about the way that you move between those spaces, the very local neighborhood context, and then the sort of transnational
0: uh, forces that are at work? Uh, sure. That chapter in some ways is framed around these riots that take place in Belleville mm-hmm. uh, in 1968 in the summer, about a year after uh, the 1967 uh, Six-Day War in the Middle East. Uh, and because they take place almost a year uh, to the day of, uh, the uh, victory of Israel in that war, um, or I should say the start of that war, which is, of course, a short war, six days, um, the perception is immediately that these riots between Jews and Muslims living in Belville must be tied to that anniversary. Um, but when we look more closely, we see Belville was this really interesting you know, cosmopolitan space where Jews and Muslims had been living together successfully for several years uh, in significant numbers. Uh, There were large numbers of particularly Jews from Tunisia and Muslims from both Tunisia and uh, Algeria who did things like, you know, sharing uh, pastries with each other on their holidays, um, you know, working sometimes in each other's businesses, um, having a uh, sense of shared North African identity in uh, certain shared spaces in public while also uh, having kind of their own spaces uh, that they uh, respected. Uh, for each other, right? So they had signposts uh, that I talked a little bit about um, in, at the end of chapter five where, okay, you know, I might go into this, ca- I might be a Muslim who goes into this cafe where I see, um, you know, a, a poster for, with an Israeli flag on it, uh, but I know that's a Jewish space, um, and I know that that's a synagogue over there where my Jewish friends uh, pray, uh, so therefore it makes it easier for us to interact uh, in ways that we don 't feel our identities are threatened by one another, um, but it also relied on people basically you know keeping uh, topics of conflict out of those uh, spaces of interaction uh, and the Belleville riots are a moment where what begins as a dispute over a card game and of course it's always important to remember that a Jew and a Muslim were playing cards in a cafe together, and that was considered very normal in this context mm-hmm. of a typical everyday interaction uh, but that card game uh, where there's a dispute it seems that the muslim lost the game didn't want to pay uh the winnings um all of a sudden becomes a dispute that's understood as having uh you know transnational uh conflict uh, implications related to uh the arab israeli uh conflict and so those rules of, uh, you know, respecting each other's spaces and not trying to uh, influence each other's politics in public feel like they're being broken. Uh, and and the way people talk about this event is that, you know, Jews were too ostentatious with their pride over Israel's victory. Or the Muslims of the neighborhood were itching for a fight on the anniversary of the Six-Day War. Uh, and, you know, somebody complains, you know, uh we know we don't agree about the middle east but we all live here together in france so can't we you know not worry about that uh and so you know here's a case where uh the local is unmistakably uh reframed in international terms mm-hmm. um but the meaning of that international conflict is also very much uh localized uh, around um both you know, shared spaces and also things like, uh, you know, class tensions uh, between the greater upward mobility for a lot of uh, Jewish uh, immigrants from North Africa than Muslim immigrants from North Africa. Uh, the uh, events of May 1968, uh, which had a lot of people on edge anyway uh, and had, you know, galvanized uh, certain movements, including the beginnings of a pro-Palestinian movement in France. Um, and so uh, I, I think... Broadly speaking, what I try to do is to think about the ways that uh, the local at times can escape uh, from uh, international uh, tensions and uh, international uh, identifications, but often also becomes reshaped by those. And even friendly relations in local contexts take on different meaning uh, because of what's going on globally.
1: In the last chapter of the book, Ethan, you're really sort of taking us through the last three decades of the 20th century, and you're looking at uh, the impact of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You're also talking about, at this point, um, the memories of both the Holocaust and colonialism and imperialism, um, and also a range of different types of claims being made by Jews and Muslims um, on the French state uh, with respect to uh, religious and other forms of difference. So, just in a kind of broad sense, these three decades—I mean, does it make sense to think in terms of decades—the seventies, the eighties, the nineties—is the there a kind of broad movement across these decades? What can you tell us about this period uh, in in a general sense?
0: Right. I mean, this chapter is obviously the most synthetic chapter of the book because it covers far more uh, time than the other chapters. Um, you know, I in some ways I was particularly interested in digging into the 1970s as a period that has not been studied a great deal, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly with with respect to Jews and Muslims relations with one another um, and seeing how in very different kinds of ways, uh, Muslims largely through a uh, movement of uh, North African so-called Arab workers uh, and Jews in significant part uh, around sort of newly assertive, uh, both pro Israel identity and Holocaust consciousness, the way that the two groups are making claims on the French state, uh, for a kind of right to difference avant la lettre. That is, you know, in the 1980s, we are familiar with the fact that. Uh, le droit à la différence becomes in vogue, uh, at least for a moment, uh, that it's even invoked by François Mitterrand when he runs for president in 1981. And he takes concrete actions shortly after he's elected to, you know, permit all of these so-called foreign associations. And there's a whole flowering of uh, particularly uh, North African associations in the beginning of the so-called Burg movement. Uh, and then we have Uh, this momentary alliance of Jews and Muslims, uh, in the anti-racist movement, particularly in SOS Racisme, uh, where one of the mottos is, uh, the right to difference. But the 1970s, I think, are an important, uh, sort of testing ground for a lot of those ideas where, uh, they really begin to germinate. Um, and you already have, uh, the two groups trying to, uh, resituate what it means to, be in a republic where typically people have understood, uh, you know, integration to depend in significant part on, uh, keeping their identities behind closed doors, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly in a, in the post-colonial moment, uh, where I argue it actually became harder for people to, uh, be, you know, publicly French plus, so to speak. Um, and so they're trying, in a sense, to kind of renegotiate the meaning of the republic in a way that briefly will really come to fruition in the 1980s, at the same time that, you know, by the mid-1980s, there is this very uh, notable backlash from the far right. And so the, you know, the, the 1970s is a moment where the two groups are testing uh, whether they can, you know, reframe what it means to be, uh, French and also testing whether they can coexist on those terms, right? Um, you know, to go back to the discussion about neighborhoods, uh, if, if in previous, uh, periods, one, you know, needed to be particularly careful about how one was Jewish or Muslim in public, uh, greater public assertiveness on the part of both groups tests, you know, can, can we live together, uh, without keeping our Jewishness and Muslimness, uh, largely in private? uh how can we live together like that uh and you know in the 1980s there's a moment where it appears that you know the you have Jews and Muslims sort of you know pushing that point both in terms of coexistence and their identities against uh the pannational uh very much claiming otherwise um by the late 1980s the possibilities for public difference seem to be in eclipse uh and Jewish Muslim tensions have really flared uh in significant part uh, because of uh, the Israeli-Arab conflict, but also uh, because of a backlash specifically against Muslims that also makes many Jews feel threatened. Um, the 1990s, there are a lot of sort of uh, competing developments, and there certainly are uh, optimistic indications uh, around the sort of finally uh, France coming to terms with uh, the Holocaust beginning to come to terms with the uh, Algerian War, uh, therefore kind of public recognition for very important claims of memory of both groups. And the fact that between 1993 and 2000, many observers think that the Middle East conflict is finally about to be resolved uh, peaceably, which bodes well for Jewish-Muslim relations everywhere. Um and yet, of course, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, we have this explosion of, uh, anti-Jewish violence in France with Muslims, uh, having, uh, a very disproportionate, uh, you know, making a disproportionate number of the perpetrators, uh, even if it's a small minority of people from, uh, the Muslim population, uh, and Jews, uh, in many cases embracing, uh, a lot of the negative stereotypes, uh, about Muslims, uh, that are really Kind of, uh, reemerging, uh, with a vengeance in that uh, historical moment. So, um, the, you know, we, we could see, uh, the rise of hopes, uh, in the 1980s, uh, and maybe, maybe some real challenges to those hopes, but sort of new hopes in the 1990s. And then the realization that, um, the challenges are much greater to coexistence, uh, than maybe previously thought, uh, with the outbreak, uh, of uh, this tension in the early 2000s that really has, you know, it's waxed and waned a little bit, but it has certainly not gone away. As we know, uh, the last mm-hmm. couple of years have have been, you know, the hardest yet.
1: So, Ethan, in your introduction, you make the point that I'm quoting you here that this is not a book about France's current crisis, but rather the long evolution in relations that preceded it. And and I know for you know obvious reasons, you've been asked to comment a lot on, especially the events of. 2015 and the last couple of years and so i'm wondering just to begin with how those events changed your thinking about the book if they did
0: right um i mean the first thing i I think is the most important thing to say is that the book was always written in the shadow of crisis um the the you know by by 2004 when i conceived of the book um you know a lot of people who care about France were talking about Jewish Muslim tensions in France. Um, you know, two thousand, you know, starting in autumn two thousand uh, to the early months of two thousand one had been the biggest spike of anti Semitic violence in France since World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, things were seemingly calmer in two thousand four, but there was still. You know, between 2000 and 2010, there were an average of 600-some um, anti-Semitic incidents reported in France every year. And, you know, the second most targeted group each year uh, in terms of racist incidents was Muslims. So – Um, and you know, a small number of attackers, a much smaller number, uh, than vice versa were, uh, were Jews in those incidents. Um, so, you know, the tensions were already very much there from Mm -hmm. the beginning of my writing the book. Um, and you know, that was, that affected the kinds of conversations I had with people in France. Um, and you know, people's responses to my, my research really throughout. And then in 2012 with the, uh, shooting at the school in Toulouse, um, you know, where Jews were were murdered, um, by, uh, someone who was, um, you know, self-identifying with Al Qaeda that I think was in some ways the beginning of a new phase. Um, but I should say that, you know, at, at that moment, then I, I thought, okay, I have to talk, you know, about these most recent events, uh, at the end of the book. Um, and until the events of, uh, January, 2015, my conclusion started with the events in Toulouse. Um, but I had the sense that the events of Charlie Hebdo and, uh, Cachet were events of a different order, uh, in terms of their kind of global impact and their impact on, you know, all of France, uh, in a way that sort of made them a more, um, important historical reference probably going forward of knowing of course that we can't forecast the future. And I could not of course have forecast the events of, uh, November 13th, uh, 2015. Um, so, um, so I sort of reoriented, um, a little bit around that, even though at the time it, it was right when I was finishing revisions for the book and, uh, it's all, you always feel ill at ease, uh, writing about so recent. Um, but I, I guess for me, you know, I, I always felt like I was trying to think my way out of, um, a lot of assumptions that were being made because of a contemporary conflict that, uh, is so, uh, volatile, uh, and, and troubling on, on lots of different levels. Uh, and of course I couldn't ignore that. Of course that was, that was part of the impetus for the book. Uh, and, uh, it, I had to think about you know, how had relations evolved and and in some ways I was, I was partly trying to understand the current crisis. Uh, but I also didn't want it to, uh, overwhelm me in terms of, um, you know, causing me to, uh, constantly rethink things in the wake of tragic incidents.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, Ethan, there are so many other questions that I would love to ask you, but I'm just going to ask you one more, which is what are you working on now?
0: I am working on a new project that is tentatively entitled Freeing the Empire. The paradox of that title is deliberate. The subtitle is The Jewish Uprising That Helped the Allies Win the War. Mm. Uh, And it's about an underground movement in Algiers during World War II uh, that was very important to the success of Operation Torch. Uh, It's very little known. Most of the participants were Jews. The non-Jewish participants were largely arch-conservatives, many of them anti-Semites. And so uh, along with the fact that it's this remarkable great story that hasn't really been told, uh, it's also a way to try to rethink uh, the meaning of resistance uh, outside of kind of the ideological binaries uh, that generally shape our understanding of uh, resistance during uh, the Second World War and and to also uh, contribute to a growing conversation about the Holocaust beyond uh, the borders of continental Europe.
1: Well, it sounds like a fascinating story and I hope I'll get a chance to talk to you about it at some point. Thanks so much, Ethan, for joining me and for writing the book.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me.